Lord, would You refresh us tonight with Your Word. Wash us, Lord, with the water and with the Word, as Paul wrote, and and refresh our spirits and encourage, Lord, all those who have come into the barn tonight just to pour over what You have for us. Lord, it uh, it would seem odd to say refresh us by a book, and yet Your Word is is different than any other. And we realize that by opening this up and calling out to You, we, we receive not only the Word written on the page, but the Word spoken by Your Spirit into our hearts. And uh, truly, Lord, that is what draws us together, is to hear from Your Holy Spirit, to learn to listen. Lord, You, you speak in so many ways. We've talked about this quite a bit lately. You speak to us in that still small voice. Father, You speak to us sometimes through impression, uh, through dreams and visions, through other believers bringing a word. Father, You also speak to us through pain. And Lord, as we'll see tonight, You speak in the thunder. There are times where Your voice is so loud and is so absolutely clear that we cannot but help to know it's You talking. Sometimes, Lord, we realize You need to thunder just to get our attention. Well, Father, however... Uh, people have come in tonight. However, each one of us need to hear from you, uh, whether it's quietly, peacefully, gently, or or loudly, Father. We just ask you to speak. Pray that you'd walk us through this life, Father. We don't want to be selfish in our prayer. We actually are praying that you would walk us through and fill us up with your Spirit, so that we would be useful to you, so that we would be instruments of yours in truly a dying world. A Christ-rejecting, sinful world. A world that has said no to you time and time again. We pray that we would be as lights in the darkness. As stars shining in the heavens. Father, that we would reveal your glory. Not from us, but reflected off of us. The glory that we seek when we come before you. Pray, Father, you would give us holy opportunities to talk to people about Jesus. And to live out our faith in our lives, not as something religious or traditionalist or, or legalistic, Father, but, but lives lived in revelation as Your Spirit leads us. Pray, Father, that You would just salt our speech with grace and with the Gospel message and with the name Jesus until You come again. And Lord, tonight as we study Your Word, Holy Spirit, be our teacher. May we hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, we are in chapter 34 of the book of Job. We've been studying through this and there are several characters to be aware of. There is Job, obviously the book of Job. It's about Job. This man who in the first couple of chapters had, had a horrible time. His life falling apart all around him. Losing everything including possessions and family and even his health, everything gone. And then he gets into this dialogue with his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and the dialogue continues across chapter after chapter after chapter as they go back and forth, Job defending himself, Eliphaz defending his religious views, Bildad defending his perspective of tradition and and his past and what he believes the world to be about, and, and Zophar defending just legalistically And every time one of these guys begins to speak and come after Job and say, you're wrong, you must be sinning, there's something in your life, Job turns right around and responds. 
And he gives some tough response to the point where when it finally is all said and done, we're told in chapter 32 that the three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And truly, Job hadn't done anything to deserve all the stuff that had happened to him. The pain, the suffering, the sorrow. He didn't earn that. And he rightfully could say that, and we can say that, because we look back at chapter 1 where the Lord declared Job to be righteous. So it's not because of something Job did that he's in the position he's in. And he's been defending himself while the other guys are defending their positions. And along comes Elihu. Elihu shows up in chapter 32 as we began to see last week. Elihu now has the mic. And here's the unique difference. Here's what's changed. Job is not answering back. Job is now for the first time in all these chapters across probably what was a span of months, many moons, suddenly Job is silenced. He's listening. I I don't know why. I don't know if it's just that Job is so sick that he can't answer or if he's just so tired of the debate. I think it's more likely that he's intrigued by Elihu. Because this young man has stayed quiet while the older, wiser so-called men have been speaking. And now when he begins to speak up for the first time, Job is getting a new perspective that makes sense. And he's listening. He's paying attention curiously. He doesn't interrupt. He doesn't defend. He's listening. A path is being laid by Elihu. We talked about Sunday, we talked a little bit last week. Elihu serves as a forerunner. He's kind of the Enoch of the story. Forerunning the flood in Genesis. Or perhaps the John the Baptist forerunning the coming of Jesus. Or or better yet, the Elijah figure forerunning the gathering storm and God's response. Elihu speaks across six chapters and then suddenly God shows up and speaks to Job. Chapter 38 tells us, out of the whirlwind. We'll get right up to the edge of that tonight as we continue to listen in to the words of Elihu who is intriguing and capturing the attention of Job. Verse 1, chapter 34. Then Elihu continued and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and listen to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. That's the second time we've heard that. Job said it in chapter 12, verse 11. The ear tests words as the palate tastes food. So now Elihu is quoting Job, and wonderfully, he quotes Job correctly. We've already seen he doesn't always do that. Elihu, for all the good things that he brings, and for his teaching, which is spot on for the most part, he does misquote or misrepresent Job a couple of times. We'll see another time tonight. But in this case, he says exactly what Job said. As the ear tests words, the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. He says, let us choose for ourselves what is right. Let's know among ourselves what's good. For Job has said, I'm righteous, but God has taken away my right. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. Elihu says, Job, you're crying foul. You've been across all these months saying, this is unfair, unjust. What about my rights? And Elihu will point out, that's a self-indulgent question. It's a very American question, by the way. What about my rights in the land of the free and the home of the brave? What about, I have rights. I know I do. They're written down somewhere. But I know I've got rights. Elihu would say, rather than indulging in what your rights are, or or feeling like your rights have been taken away, 
The better question is not, am I right or where am I right? It's, who is right? Who is right? And how can we seek His righteousness? The better question, when we're struggling, when we're in pain, is not what's been taken away from me and how am I hurting and and how am I feeling about this as much as, Lord, what are you up to? The Father, what are you doing? Lord, what can I learn of you that perhaps I couldn't outside of this circumstance? And Elihu says, let's set aside traditions and and opinions in favor of what is right. I tell you what I like about Elihu in his... Okay, his overconfidence. And he is a bit overconfident at times. But I like the fact that his concern and his confidence are centered on God's righteousness and not man's. It's one of the things that makes him different in the story of Job. He's the first person who comes along just talking about the righteousness of God. The other guys, all four of them, are defending either themselves or their own righteousness or the righteousness of their opinions and positions. That's the ongoing problem that Job and his friends have had in this claim to self-rightness. Well, verse 7, Elihu says, What man is like Job, who drinks up derision like water, who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men? This is getting a little rough here. So far, Elihu has not done this, but now all of a sudden, he, he's, starting to, he's starting to get a little heavy-handed. But, but understand in verse 7, he's not saying that Job is a man who takes derision on himself. And it may read that way who drinks up derision like water. What he's saying, and the literal translation is, he thirsts for irreverent talk. He's saying, Job, you're listening to the naysayers. In the things I hear coming out of your mouth, you obviously have been paying attention to people who would deride God. You're listening to those who are against God. You're consuming the language of those who would decry God. Now that's what Elihu's saying. Is, is that the case? Is Job guilty of that? He goes on in verse 8 again and says, Who goes in the company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men. Elihu is leveling some pretty serious charges. Now, he's about to make a great point. But it's one of those times when he misrepresents what Job actually said. Here's what he says, going on in verse 9. For Job has said, It profits a man nothing when he's pleased with God, or literally when he takes delight in God. Elihu says, I heard you say this, Job. You said it profits a man nothing when he takes delight in God. What did Job really say? Well, Job 21, verse 15. He said, quote, Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what would we gain if we entreat Him? So based on that direct quote, Elihu's pretty pretty close. But here's the problem. Job wasn't saying that out of his own heart. Job was saying, this is what wicked men say. He's not saying, I say this. Back in chapter 21, if you look back and read it, what Job is doing at that point is quoting what wicked people say. And he would say, a wicked person says, it profits a man nothing when he delights in God. But Job never said that himself. And the problem is, again, Elihu, he misquotes Job. He heard Job say it. But the context is not how Elihu is presenting it right now. The context was different when Job said it. I point this out again because, first off, Job is not one who has walked with the wicked. He just acknowledged the talk of the wicked. He's just saying, this is what they say. I've heard it. But he's not walking in that. But I point it out just one more time to say, be careful how you quote people. We've got to take more care of this, especially if it maligns their character. 
It is so easy to do. I'm not sure if a day goes by where at some point we don't misquote somebody to maybe what we think is our advantage and their disadvantage. And it's the reason why gossip and slander and, and such talk in the Bible is completely um, shut down. It's why God says, this is not the way you are to be. In fact, Colossians 4, 6, Paul says, let your speech always be with grace. I mean, honestly, that to me is what, it's a lot harder than, you know, do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. These things are easy. Okay, I can handle that. Haven't murdered anybody, you know, at least this week. So I'm in pretty good shape there. But this whole how I talk, what I say about other people, and we so easily do it. Let your speech always be with grace. Paul says, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Speak with grace. Now, Elihu did misunderstand or misrepresent Job's statement, but that being understood, he does go on to make a good word, to say something excellent. In verse 10 he says, Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness, and from the Almighty to do wrong. For He pays a man according to his work, and makes him find it according to his way. Surely God will not act wickedly, And the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave Him authority over the earth? And who has laid on Him the whole world? If He should determine to do so, if He should gather to Himself His Spirit and His breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to the dust. Absolutely. Well said, Elihu. If God tonight decided, you know, I'm just done, the whole thing would be over. Paul said in Colossians 1.17, He is before all things, speaking of Jesus, and in Him all things hold together. Which means if Jesus decided not to hold on anymore, all things would blow apart. What is it that holds the universe together? What is the, the what do they call the nuclear glue that holds everything together? It's the power of Jesus Christ. And it is by His determination and His decision and His will that we even have life. And he could tomorrow change the whole thing if he wanted to. And all he's saying, it's ridiculous to talk against God, even to bring up these questions that you're bringing up, Job, because he's God. And, and he's perfect. Going on in verse 16, he says, If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to the sound of my words. Shall one who hates justice rule? Will you condemn the righteous, mighty one? Who says to a king, worthless one, to nobles, wicked ones, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich above the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. And this is one of a few problems Elihu points out regarding how mankind misunderstands the righteousness of God. If you're a note taker, you can jot this down. One of the first things, and, and I'm sure you've heard this, It is the incrimination of injustice. People incriminate God saying He is not just. He's not fair. This is not right. I look around in the world, I see injustice. God must not be just. And it's a complete wrong in the understanding of humanity. Is there injustice in the world? Absolutely. Isaiah 59.14 tells us justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking. Well, I read that yesterday. Truth has stumbled in the street. It sure has. 
But because there's injustice and a lack of truth in the world does not mean that God himself is unjust. People look at the world and they say, oh, well, it's a reflection of God. It kind of reminds me of Abraham's question to God. He learns of God's intention to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah back in the book of Genesis. The Lord says, should I not you know, let Abraham in on what I'm about to do? And so he goes and he lets Abraham know, I'm going to destroy these towns. And, and Abraham says, far be it from you to do such a thing, Genesis 18.25, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. And then he makes this statement, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Now it's kind of a Hebrew question. Abraham is asking, which assumes an absolute true answer. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Absolutely the judge of all the earth deals justly. Of course he does. The God of all the earth is perfectly just, completely and impartially fair. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Psalm 19 verse 9 tells us the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, and the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And here's the thing, until we accept that God is perfectly just, until we believe and receive that as truth, that God is fair, then true justice and truth will elude us. We'll never understand justice. Until we have that starting point, that pillar of truth that God is fair, When we understand that, even for all the unfairness in the world, when we know that God is fair, now we have a place from which to start. Now we have a place on which we can stand in our evaluation of our lives in the world. We know God's fair, so something else must be happening when there is unfairness. Most likely answer is the sin of man and the freedom God has given us in this world. Now Elihu goes on to give the ultimate example of God's impartiality. Death. Verse 20. In a moment they die, and at midnight people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away without a hand. Talk about impartiality. Everyone dies. Hate to be the bearer of that bad news. Everyone dies, and if you want to talk about fair, it's the good, the bad, the ugly, and the cute. They all die. All people die. Complete impartiality. Everyone dies goes down to the grave. Romans 5.12 puts it this way. Paul says, Sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's fair. If death is the punishment of sin and everybody has sinned, then everybody will die. That is fair. Totally fair. But there's an even greater measure, a more wonderful measure of God's fairness and impartiality. Paul says, However, if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So that as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Which means no one is exempt from the opportunity to be saved. You know what? To my mind, that's not fair. That's not what we deserve. That's not just. And yet, God flips justice on its head and says, yeah, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send Jesus. I'm going to die in your place. I'm going to do what's not fair. Because I love you so much. But the impartiality of grace is this. The message the Gospel goes out to everyone. 
everyone. This is why I cannot accept a predetermined belief that says some people are selected for hell and some are selected for heaven. No. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Everyone has the opportunity to be saved. That's impartial grace. Elihu continues on in verse 21. He says, For for His eyes are upon the ways of man, and He sees all His steps. There's no darkness or deep shadow where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. He does not need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. He breaks in pieces, mighty men, without inquiry. Why? Because he already knows what's going on in their hearts. He doesn't even need to ask. He sets others in their place. Therefore, he knows their works, and he overthrows them in the night, and they're crushed. He strikes them like the wicked in a public place, or in other words, where everyone can see, because they turned aside from following Him. God knows what's going on. And nothing gets past Him. He's aware of everything. Hebrews 4.13 tells us there's no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And one of the most oddly uh, ironic things that people do in the world is try to hide their sin. As if. Now, I'm not trying to say that God's just waiting to, you know, keep you under His thumb, that He's waiting to pounce on you. But the truth is, there's no hiding from God. It's not like many of our homes where there are dark places and crevices and crawl spaces where we never go. No, God goes. He's been there. He sees everything. You can't hide it from Him. There's no secret place. Nothing is too deep for God. But it says going on, verse 27, Elihu says, because they turned aside from following Him and He had no regard and had no regard for any of his ways, so that they caused the cry of the poor to come to him, and that he might hear the cry of the afflicted. When he keeps quiet, who then can condemn? And when he hides his face, who then can behold him? That is in regard to both nation and to man. Elihu makes a really interesting point here. He says, if God chooses to be quiet, it's for a reason. If God is silent to your prayers, don't force the issue. If you're crying out to God, and he's speaking to Job, who's been crying out to God for a long time, and again and again, Job says, why don't you answer me? Why don't you come before me? Why don't we have a mediator between us? Why don't we argue our case in court? I'm not hearing a word. All I'm getting is silence. And Elihu says, hey, when God is being silent, don't push it. There's a reason for the silence. Skip down to chapter 35, verse 15. We read this Sunday morning. Elihu says, And now because he has not visited in his anger, nor has he acknowledged transgression well, so Job opens his mouth emptily and multiplies words without knowledge. And this is the second huge human problem in our perspective of God's righteousness. Not only the incrimination of injustice, but secondly, the assumption of absence. He's not speaking. He hasn't shown himself. He hasn't judged lately. He must not be around. A large number of the Jewish people today are secular in their belief system because they think God is either dead or has gone away. Why? Because He has not spoken to Israel 2,400 years. We haven't heard from God. He's silent. Therefore, He must be absent. It's not true. 
Just because God is quiet doesn't mean He's callous or uncaring or preoccupied somewhere else. Psalm 34.18 tells us, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Maybe you just needed to hear that tonight. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. Right there. But when we start to think He's remote or, or distant, that's when we actually can begin to scorn as if He can't hear us. You know, Peter said mockers will come in their mocking. Why? Because they don't see God. They figure He must not be around. So let's talk about Him behind His back. Apparently He's not the great God we thought He was. And they begin to deride God because they think He's absent or they don't see Him or hear Him. Funniest thing, last night, I'm sitting in the downstairs bathroom and Naomi and David are in the tub. Bath time. And I was just sitting there on the sink, you know, just keeping an eye on things, making making sure David didn't go under which he can do. And Naomi is, is in the corner of the tub. She's got her little toys and she's just sitting there and she's singing, you know, at the top of her voice. I don't even know what it was. It was, it was a Naomi song. She's kind of a made-up song. had to do with the toys and being a princess and, and killing the dragon. I don't know what it was. And she's singing this and all of a sudden, and I'm watching her and I'm just smiling because she's just so easy to adore, you know. And I'm looking at her smiling and she's singing, and looks up and sees me and sees that I'm looking at her. She goes, and she took the curtain to the bathtub and went now I'm out of sight and I just waited to see what she was going to do pulled the curtain between us where she couldn't see me and I couldn't see her and burst right back into song again and I thought you know that is so like kids you know out of sight out of mind if I can close off and put myself in my own little space then no one can hear me no one sees me Dad's not there anymore. You know, until I said, What are you singing, Naomi? And the song stopped again. (laughs) He's still there. I closed the curtain, but he's still there. (laughs) But as silly as that is, that's how we are with God. That's how mankind is with God. He's not answering. I don't see him. He must be absent. Maybe he's gone away. Psalm 145, verse 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon Him. To all who call upon Him in truth. Which means if tonight you call out to the Lord, you cry out to the name of the Lord, you say, Lord, and if you weren't a Christian at all before, maybe tonight you say, Lord, I want to be Yours. I want to walk with You. Will You be my God? Please come into my life. Guess what? He'll be near. Right there. Will I hear Him? Maybe not. Will I see Him? Probably not. But He's there. And I guarantee if you walk with Him over time, you will begin to hear Him. Going on, verse 30. He says, uh, when all this happens, when they, uh, they have no regard for His ways, they cry out, they cause the poor to cry out because of Him. It says in verse 30, so that godless men would not rule, nor be snares of the people. Now, let me put this in context. Elihu just said the Lord keeps quiet so that godless men won't rule. What does that mean? God doesn't answer prayer so that godless men won't rule. Great example of this. Israel cried out for a king. We want a king like the nations. And so, you know who they got? Saul. We studied this back in 1 Samuel. Saul was the people's choice. 
The people cried out for a king. They said to Samuel the prophet, 1 Samuel 8.5, Behold, you've grown old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. That's your prayer? The Lord says, okay. Because you prayed for a king like all the nations, I'm going to give you a king like all the nations. And it was a mess. The people's choice was Saul. He answered their prayer. Sometimes an entire nation will make a request of God, but He remains silent to our prayers because if He answers the request, it will not go well for us. And we'll end up with a godless man in the White House. I'll let you determine if that happened in the last election. Sometimes, sometimes we go begging God for something in our personal lives or for someone. We say, God, I want this or I want that or could you make this happen for me or this is really what I think needs to happen and He's absolutely silent. Why? Because if He answers the prayer, it will not go well for us. And that's what Elihu is saying. Job, you don't want God to answer some of the things you've been asking. Truly, you don't want to meet God face to face in court because it would not go well for you. And that's what he's saying there in in verse 30. But in any case, silence from God does not mean absence. It's often purposeful and we need to learn to wait on Him. Verse 31, continuing, he says, For has anyone said to God, I've borne chastisement, I will not offend anymore, teach me what I don't see. And if I've done iniquity, I will not do it again. Shall he recompense on your terms because you've rejected? For you must choose and not I. Therefore, declare what you know. Job will soon realize that he was wrong for, to, to, to demand that God would deal with him on his own terms. But for now, he's giving off this air of self-righteousness. He's demanding that God meet him where he is. And what he's showing is an attitude of unrepentance. Wait a minute. Rick didn't just say Job was righteous and if he's righteous then he shouldn't need to repent. No, we talked about many weeks ago repentance is not just turning from sin it's turning to God. And so far Job has yet to do that. Job has not turned to God. He's turned to himself. He's inwardly dealing with all this stuff and Elihu's saying dude, you're trying to get God to meet you on your terms. Perhaps it's time for you to go meet him on his terms. Well, it rubs Elihu the wrong way. Elihu has a strong sense of God's righteousness. And some think he, think he gets a little ornery, ornery here, and he does. Verse 34, he says, Men of understanding will say to me, and a wise man who hears me, Job speaks without knowledge, and his words are without wisdom. Job ought to be tried to the limit. Because he answers like wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin, he claps his hands among us, and multiplies his words against God. That's kind of rough. Now, read it in context. Elihu is not saying this should happen to Job. He's not saying, Job, I hope it gets worse for you. He's saying wise people will say that. He's saying, Job, people who would listen to what you're saying? In other words, no wonder Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are coming down so hard on you. Because they're hearing you say things, and it's upsetting to them, because it seems to them that you're attempting to take on God, Job. And that's the problem here. That's what's happening. And then Elihu continued chapter 35 and said, Do you think this is according to justice? Do you say, My righteousness is more than God's? And in essence, gang, that's what we do when we question God's righteousness. 
when we question His justice and His fairness, we say, we know something He doesn't. You know, we're more righteous than you are, God, because, because we're questioning where you're coming from and what you're doing. We're flipping the tables on the Lord here. For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit will I have more than if I had sinned? I will answer you, Elihu says, and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see, and behold, the clouds, they are higher than you. You're out of your league, Job, when you talk against God. When you challenge God. This thing is way bigger than you realize. Now we talked through the rest of chapter 5 on Sunday. I'm not going to do it tonight. If you want to hear it, go back and, and listen to it online. But here is where we see for the first time a glimmer of the fact that Elihu is a forerunner of a gathering storm. Remember this? Verse 5. Look at the heavens and see. And, and behold, the clouds. They're higher than you. They're in the Middle East. And the appearance of clouds is not a rogue thing in the Middle East. The appearance of clouds indicates something's coming. More often than not, if you see clouds beginning to form, there's a storm that will follow. And Elihu is the forerunner of the gathering storm. Like an Enoch, like an Elijah or a John the Baptist character. Now, some might say, okay then, if Elihu is this forerunner of God's coming, how can he make so many mistakes? I mean, how, how can he misquote Job? And Job, judge Job a little harshly, and how can he speak overconfidently, if not, if not arrogantly? And the answer to that is, hey, John the Baptist himself was imperfect. John the Baptist, the forerunner of the coming Christ, had his own issues, had his own problems. He, he was in prison. And there in prison, he begins to doubt He begins to worry. This is the same John who saw Jesus coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the John who said, After me is coming one greater than I, who I don't even have the right to take his shoes off. You know, I baptize with water, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. John said all this stuff very confidently about Jesus, but now John's sitting in prison. And he begins to think, What if I was wrong? What what if it's not Jesus? I mean, here I am in prison. This is not what I expected. It's not what I put in for. And we're told, in fact, over in John chapter 1, you can turn over there. While you're turning, Matthew 11, he sent a message by his disciples to Jesus from prison, and John asked this question. He said, are you the expected one, or should we look for someone else? John's faith is wavering. Does that mar the message of John? Not at all. Does it mess up what John shared? Does it blow apart the fact that he was forerunner? No, the fact that his faith wavered just shows us John, the forerunner, was a human being. Like you, like me. John chapter 1, verse 19, and I love this about himself. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. Well, they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. They said to him, Well, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm a voice. One crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as Isaiah the prophet said. He quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. Where Isaiah said, where the Lord said through Isaiah, one will cry out in the wilderness prior to the coming of Mashiach, Messiah. 
John says, well, that's me. I'm just a voice in the wilderness. I love this about John. His humility. He says in another place, he must increase, I must decrease. John knew his place. Let me give you just a few traveling tips for forerunners. Because as we talked about on Sunday, you are a forerunner. If you are in Christ in this generation, you are a forerunner of the gathering storm. You are a forerunner of the coming Christ. You and I, that's our role, that's our calling as forerunners to let people know it's coming. Be ready. Make straight the paths of the Lord. We are voices crying out in the wilderness just like John the Baptist was. And here are some travel tips. Number one, don't retail sale your calling. Don't retail sale your calling. Don't get out there and start selling yourself as a forerunner. The moment we take our eyes off of Jesus and put it on ourselves and the role that we have been called to is when we begin to mess up. John could have done this. John, in his position, was a powerful prophet. People were coming in droves out to see John to get baptized to him. John probably baptized far more people than Jesus ever did. He was very popular among the people, especially on the street. And they're flowing out to John, and he could have puffed up and said, Yes, I am the Elijah of the day. He was a type of Elijah. He had the spirit and power of Elijah. He could have said, That's me. I'm the Elijah. I'm the forerunner. But John was not out there selling himself, and John was not out there selling a religion. He was just out there saying, I'm a voice. I am just a voice in the wilderness. All I'm here to do is point to Him. Is to say He's coming. After me comes one far greater than I. You need to look to Him. Don't retail sale your calling. Just be a forerunner. Just call out. Be ready. Make the way straight. Get right with God through Jesus. Back to Job. So we did chapter 35 on Sunday. Chapter 36, verse 1. Then Elihu continued and said, Wait for me a little and I will show you that there is yet more to be said in God's behalf. Again, this is Elihu's calling. Elihu meaning he is God. Elihu's whole purpose is to point to God and to defend God. Not himself, not his views, like Job and his friends. I will fetch my knowledge from afar and I will ascribe righteousness to my Maker. For truly, he says, my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Now, if you read that, you go, alright, Elihu just stepped over the line. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you, Elihu says. I don't believe Elihu's talking about himself. And I'll show you why in just a few minutes. He's not arrogant. He's confident. Read on, verse 5. Behold, he says, God is mighty, but does not despise any. He is mighty in strength and in understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives justice to the afflicted. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in fetters and are caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they have magnified themselves. He opens their ear to instruction. He commands that they return from evil. If they hear and serve, or if they hear and serve Him, they will end their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. But if they do not hear, they shall perish by the sword. They'll die without knowledge. 
But the godless in heart lay up anger, and they do not cry for help when He binds them. They die in youth, and their life perishes among the cult prostitutes. Now listen, we already showed that to be faulty. At least the way it reads there. We already showed earlier in another study that it is not true that sinners die quickly and righteous people live long. Just look at life. You all know of good, righteous followers of of the Lord who have died young. And you also know of some pretty wicked people who are out there doing just fine, thank you very much. But that's not what Elihu is saying. He is not saying that the, the wicked die in youth. The exact translation is their souls die in youth. And I think he's right. Their soul dies in youth. Their life among the cult prostitutes. I can make a case for that. What do you mean? As we begin in our lives to embrace sin, or and young people especially, listen to this. As we begin to embrace sin and rebellion, our souls start to die. The more we embrace sin and rebellion, the more our souls die. What do you mean your souls? I mean our mind, our intellect, the seat of reason. It begins to die off. And for many people who you see later in life who are just wicked and sinful and messed up, their soul died long ago. Elihu makes a good point. Their soul dies in youth. Paul described this with phrases like depraved minds. Romans 1.28 Or consciences seared. 1 Timothy 4.2 Or having become callous. Philippians 4.19 And Elihu is right. There comes a time in life when the die is cast by the choices we make. Not because God is not forgiving, but because our minds become hardened against God. Our hearts become hard in a place of rebellion and the the possibility of turning around and repenting, it's going to be very difficult. Not impossible. God has the power and the ability to soften even the hardest of hearts. But Elihu's right. The die is cast. The soul dies and is given over to sin. But listen to these words of grace, verse 15. He delivers the afflicted in their affliction. He opens their ear in time of oppression. Then indeed... He enticed you, speaking to Job, from the mouth of distress. Instead of it, instead of a hard life, a broad place with no constraint, and that which was on your table was full of fatness. What is this, Elihu? He's saying, Job, you had the good life. God gave you everything. He provided for you. You've had wonderful days in your past, and it's all because of the Lord. Well, then why did this all happen to Job? Verse 17. But you were full of judgment on the wicked. Hmm. Judgment and justice take hold. The translators added, of you, but literally he just says, judgment and justice take hold, and they do. Remember what Jesus says? Don't judge, because as you judge, so you will be judged. And if we judge, judgment will take hold of us as well. Elihu points out something interesting, again, that we didn't realize before, that there was judgment in the heart of Job. He says, You are full of judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold. Beware that wrath does not entice you to scoffing, and do not let the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Now, these are too important to go by too quickly here. Verse 17. You are full of judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold. Beware that wrath does not entice you to scoffing. In other words, and here's a second tip for a forerunner. Do not rejoice in wrath. 
Don't rejoice in wrath. Don't rejoice in wrath. This happens far too much in the church. Well, the homosexual community, they got AIDS. Serves them right. People rejoice in the wrath. You've heard, I, I, we talked about it before, Westboro Baptist Church. Seen them in the news? They're the ones that show up at the funerals of, of military uh, personnel who have died in, in battle. Um, specifically, especially if they were homosexual, they'll show up with signs you know, saying horrific things. God wanted you dead. You know, God's pleased when soldiers die. Just awful stuff. And it's a complete misrepresentation. We are not in, in, invited to join in wrath or to enjoy the wrath of God on other people. It is far, it's far too easy for us to rejoice in the suffering of a sinful person or a people group and we see judgment happening and so we jump on the bandwagon and judge too. We see the wrath of God poured out in a person's life and we go, ah, yeah, see, that's why I don't go down that road because, uh, see, they're getting what they deserved. And we're right on the line there. God alone has the ability to handle wrath and to handle vengeance. We don't. We do not handle vengeance well. We get too excited. You don't believe me? Watch an adventure film. You know, Go see a movie where someone gets killed and the good guy now is going after the killer. All you want is for the killer to get killed. And badly. <laughs> and when they get wiped out at the end, you're like, yes! That's because the human heart can't handle vengeance. Which is why God said, vengeance is mine. I'll take care of it. If we are to be forerunners of Jesus Christ, we must not rejoice in wrath. Our heart should be similar to Paul's in dealing with Israel. Listen to what he said. Romans 9.1 I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. You want to know who some of the greatest persecutors of Paul were? Jews. His own people. But Paul's heart, his attitude was not, yeah, take them down, God. No, his attitude was, I wish I could take their place. I wish I was the one accursed so that they could be saved. If I thought it would save Israel, I would pray for my own destruction. Wow. I mean, that is compassion to the nth degree. And that's the heart that we're called to. Listen, Christians, we are, we are a ransomed people. We're a redeemed people. We are not called to rejoice in the wrath of others. It should break our hearts. Look at any people group, any individual living in a sinful lifestyle. You know what's coming. That should break our hearts. Don't ever rejoice in wrath. Second thing to note, don't relax in redemption. Verse 18, he says, Do not let the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. The fact that your life has been ransomed by Jesus Christ, the fact that you've been redeemed, don't make that cause you to turn aside, sit back, relax, and do nothing. Don't relax in redemption. Don't sit back fat, dumb, and happy in your salvation, knowing you're saved, going to church, doing church stuff. That's not what we were saved for. We were not saved to be church people. I'm glad you're here tonight. But that's not why we were saved. We were saved to be people who draw others into salvation. We were saved to point other people to the shepherd who saved us. There's a whole reason that we're still alive. I've said this before. If not that, then why don't we die the second we give our lives to Jesus? 
Why doesn't He just immediately take us out? I believe in you, Lord. Great. That's another one for the group. Rick's dead. He's here. You know? Why not? Because God would have us be here proclaiming the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is part and parcel the primary reason you and I are alive today. Is to share Jesus. I wish that we could understand that more passionately. It is my heart cry to the Father, and this is just for the Bridge Fellowship. My heart cry to the Father is that we would be a fellowship that is urgent with bringing Jesus to people. Regardless of how they may react or respond, that with grace and love and compassion, we are constantly out there knocking on the doors of our friends and our family members saying, look, you need Jesus. I know I keep bugging you about this. But I cannot tell you how wonderful it is to walk with Him and how urgent it is to give your life to Him. There's far too much sitting back and relaxing in Christianity. We are forerunners of the gathering storm. Mark 16.15, He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the Gospel to all creation. That's Jesus saying that. He who has believed and been baptized shall be saved. He who has disbelieved shall be condemned. It's that simple. Colossians 1.28, Paul says, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. The call of the Gospel. Don't relax in your redemption. Elihu says in verse 19, Will your riches keep you from distress? Or all the forces of your strength? Do not long for the night, he says, when people vanish in their place. Be careful. Now, by the way, do not long for the night. He's saying, don't long for death. Job, I've heard you doing that too. Wishing that you would just die and this all be... Don't, don't do that. Don't go there. Be careful. Do not turn to evil, for you have preferred this to affliction. Behold, God is exalted in His power. Who is a teacher like Him? And who has appointed Him His way? And who has said, you have done wrong? Remember that you should exalt His work of which men have sung. All men have seen it. Man beholds from afar. Behold, God is exalted and we do not know Him. The number of His years is unsearchable. I just, do you get where Elihu is going here? Elihu, Elihu is proclaiming His name. Elihu's name, which means He is God. Elihu is just, he's, he's doing a great job here saying, Job, let's get the focus off of you and the focus off of the religion of your friends. And let's just get the focus on God. If we can take the focus off ourselves and begin looking to the Father, man, life changes. My circumstances don't bother me so much anymore because I'm looking at Him. I am so in awe of the Father that whatever mess I've made down here really you know, is not that big a deal. Elihu says, let's go to God. Let's look to Him. In all this suffering and sorrow, Job, what you need is not self-defense. What you need is to know the Lord. There's your answer. You know? That's what we need. That's the Gospel message, again, to the world. Now someone might say, well, how can I know the Lord if He's so unsearchable? Because He's a great teacher. Back there in verse, what was it, verse 22? Who is a teacher like Him? Remember what they said about Jesus? Mark 1.22 They were amazed at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. They were amazed. People would hear Jesus teach and say, I've never heard anybody teach like this before. Why? 
Because God's a great teacher. John 7.46 Even His enemies made this statement, Never has a man spoken the way He speaks. These were those who were set against Him said that. And I am convinced that God will teach anybody who asks. You, you don't understand something about the Lord, about His Word, about following Him? Ask Him. He loves it. He's a great teacher. And He will teach you. And He will draw you along. James says, hey, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, we finally get to it. All of that I wanted to move through quickly. I don't know how quickly I really did, but this is the part that is awesome. Because at this point, a literal storm begins to show up. It's no longer gathering on the horizon. Uh, horizon. It's not just a few clouds in the sky. Through the last 31 verses here of Elihu's speech, he draws off of what he sees happening all around him. Clouds are mentioned five times. Lightning is mentioned five times. Rain is mentioned five times. And thunder four times. And we find ourselves suddenly in chapter 37, as we come up to it here, moving out of the natural debates of man and toward the supernatural response of God. And things are beginning to boil in the skies above. Watch this, verse 27. He draws up the drops of water. They distill rain from the mist which the clouds pour down. They drip upon man abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? Behold, he spreads lightning about him. He covers the depths of the sea. For by these he judges peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Its noise declares His presence. The cattle also concerning what is coming up. That intrigues me. The cows get it. That's what Elihu's saying. This is one of those wonderful little moments. And I know it's going to sound like utter nonsense. But this is one of those moments. And I'm not going to steer you wrong here. Where the Bible beats science. The Bible beats science here. This is something scientists have only begun to figure out in the last, the last century. And Elihu mentioned it 4,000 years ago. What's that? I love this. Apparently cows have a kind of sixth sense when it comes to storms. They do. And this has been documented. Your, your average cow out there in the field actually senses the magnetic changes in the air when a storm is coming and will align themselves like big bovine compasses facing north. You know, our weathermen can't get it right and the cows are out in the field chewing the cud and they go... That's amazing. And Elihu says that. The cattle also, they know the storm's on the way. They see it, so they align. You know, I don't know if... What is that? It's one of those wonderful things God does in creation that bears His signature. Why would an animal know to do that? Because God has a sense of humor. I just, it reminds me of that old uh, Farsight cartoon. You know, perhaps you saw it. All the cows are sitting up and they're sipping coffee and they're all talking and they're, you know, they're saying E equals MC squared and they're having these very, you know, erudite conversations. And suddenly one of them sees a car off on the horizon, shouts "car!" and they're all down eating the grass and you know, like cows do. Interesting. The Bible beats science again. Watch this. 
So the cattle notice the storms. The storm's coming. It's all there. Verse 137, At this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. Under the whole heaven, he lets it loose and his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice. And he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. And to the downpour and the rain, be strong. Were you outside, anyone, when it hit yesterday? That downpour? Hayden and Anna Marie were out riding their bikes. And... I was in my office and I couldn't... It was just that loud... You, I'm, I'm assuming you all are aware of that. That Yesterday we had this big... Down, you're looking at me kind of like the cows turning north. Okay. You're with me here. This incredible downpour. And Elihu says, that's what God does. He says to the downpour and the rain, be strong. He seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. Then the beast goes into its lair and remains in its den. Out of the south, literally there, it's out of the chamber... I like that better. I don't know why they changed it. Out of the chamber comes the storm. And out of, not the north, but out of the scattering winds, the cold. From the breath of God, ice is made, and the expanse of the waters is frozen. Also with moisture, He loathes the thick cloud. He disperses the cloud of His lightning. It changes direction, turning around by His guidance that it may do whatever He commands it on the face of the inhabited earth. Here's a Hebrew mindset gang, and it's wonderful about Elihu. He ascribes all of it to God. It is not happenstance. It's not Mother Nature. It's not some green thing going on. It's not even the natural causes of earth. No, Elihu says, this is all God doing this. It's His hand in this world. Whether for correction, verse 13, or for His world, or for loving kindness, He causes it to happen. And man, what would our country be like? What would our world be like if we believed that today? It's not global warming. It's the Lord's hand doing what's happening. This friend of mine said several years ago, we're not, we're not smart enough to mess up the world. You know? God is the one in charge here. Whether we choose to recognize it or not, Elihu's right. God is in charge of this earth. He is the one who still brings the seasons. He's the one who brings the rains. He's the one who keeps the sun in the sky. He's the one who keeps the oxygen in the air. He's the one who keeps the animals moving and the green grass growing. It is all His hand. Listen to this, Job, verse 14. Stand and consider the wonders of God. Do you know how God establishes them? And makes the lightning of His cloud to shine? And in that question, He's starting to sound like God will in the next chapter. Do you know about the layers of thick clouds? Watch this. The wonders of one perfect in knowledge. Oh wait, we heard that before. Back in verse 4 of chapter 36, when Elihu said, One who is perfect in knowledge is with you, Job. The one who is perfect in knowledge, Elihu is not referring to himself. He's referring to God. He's saying, Job, (laughs) we are in the presence of God. One perfect in knowledge is here. It's not me. In fact, Elihu said in the verse right before that, he said, I'll fetch my knowledge from afar. I'll ascribe my righteousness. I will ascribe righteousness 
to my maker. My words are not false. Why? Because one perfect in knowledge is here. And that's where I'm getting my information, Job. Not from my head. Not from my heart. This is coming from God Himself. One perfect in knowledge is here. It's kind of like you or me saying, we have the mind of Christ. Let me ask you, is that an arrogant thing to say? I have the mind of Christ. Blow hard. No, no, it's true. Paul told us, the Word tells us, we have the mind of Christ. Why would I deny that? It's like saying, well, that's, that's my area of spiritual giftedness. It doesn't mean that you're great at it. It means you happen to, be a being, you happen to have been gifted by God for that particular thing. It's ascribing to God what's going on in your life. It's not arrogance. It's confidence to say one perfect in knowledge is here. And it's not Pastor Rick. It's not Pastor Les. It's God. And I'll tell you what, if you get anything out of tonight, it's because God wanted you to. It's because He got something into your heart. One perfect in knowledge truly is right here. Verse 17. You whose garments are hot when the land is still because of the south wind, can you with Him spread out the sky strong as a molten mirror? Teach us what we shall say to Him. We cannot arrange our case because of darkness. In other words, because we're clueless. We don't know. We can't make a case before God. Shall it be told Him what I would speak? Or should a man say that he would be swallowed up literally, literally there, that verse is, if a man speak, surely he would be swallowed up. Elihu is saying, Job, if you got into the presence of God and tried to defend yourself, you would be wiped out, buddy. You'd be overwhelmed. You wouldn't be able to speak. And truly, Job won't be. He will be blown away. He would, the only thing Job can say after God speaks to him is, I shouldn't have said a word. <laughs> I repent, I'm sorry, I'm quiet. You're right, I'm wrong. That's all Job can say out of it. He says, now, men do not see the light which is bright in the skies. That's interesting. Men do not see the light. What did John say? Jesus is the light. The Word is the light. And the light was in the world. Men did not see it. They did not recognize it. Light's in the sky. The light's here. Jesus is present. But people don't see Him. The wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes gold and splendor. Around God is awesome majesty. Tell you what, Elihu may be many things, the greatest of which he is full of God. He is just, he loves God. He proclaims God. The Almighty, verse 23, we cannot find Him. He is exalted in power and He will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. Therefore, men fear Him. He does not regard any who are wise of heart. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And we'll get to that next week. But I want you to listen. If you give, Just give me a few more minutes here. Elihu is making the case that without the Lord, without paying attention to His voice, man would simply be overcome. That it is all about Him. And as the thunder in this, in this teaching of Elihu, as the thunder literally is rolling to this epic conclusion in the ears of Job, you need to know something. And it's curious. Thunder 
is mentioned seven times in the book of Job. You can go back and count it. You will find the word thunder seven times. Okay. It begins a curiosity. Well, that's interesting. The number seven is kind of a big number in the Bible, meaning completion and all that. But that's curious. But as you look into this, it's going to seem a coincidence. From curiosity to coincidence, but ultimately you will realize, as I believe, this was calculated. Thunder mentioned seven times. Why do you say that? Turn in your Bibles over to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation 10, verse 1. Last book in the Bible should be pretty easy to find. Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. Watch this. John, in the midst of this great revelation, he says, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, the rainbow was upon his head and his face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Weird. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken... John says, I was about to write. Write down what they said. That's cool. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. It's one of the more curious passages of Scripture. It's so cool. This angel comes down out of heaven. Who is the angel? Probably not Jesus. Probably not. There are reasons for that that I don't have time to get into tonight. But suddenly, as this angel takes his stand and, and speaks in a loud voice as when a lion roars, seven peals of thunder, they say something. Something it just booms in the sky from these seven peals of thunder. What do they say? See, that's what I'm most curious about. Here we are in the book of Revelation, and, the, and this is not being revealed to us. In fact, God says, ah, 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 no, 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 I don't want anybody to know what just was said. Seal it up, John. Don't write it. What? Oh, come on. Come on, Lord. I mean, this is revelation. Reveal. And it will be. It will be revealed. I absolutely believe it. But this spoken word is not revealed here, probably because it's a specific message that should not be heard until that point in the tribulation. Something God only wants people alive on earth at the time to hear. And so he says, no, 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 not yet. They'll hear it when the time is right. But what's interesting to me, regardless of what is said, is this reference to the seven thunders. The Revelation is filled with these amazing pictures. And this is one of them. We don't know what the seven thunders say, but we do have a clue as to who the seven thunders represent Jesus was in Jerusalem it was just days before his death and and there in Jerusalem he's sharing with his disciples and he's telling them what's coming he's revealing to them that the son of man is going to be betrayed he's going to be nailed to the cross three days later he's going to rise from the dead Jesus is in the midst of this and he says this listen in John 12 verse 27 Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? 
But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Let me just side note here. That's where Job needed to go. Rather than, Father, save me from this hour, like Jesus, how much better to say, I think this must be why I'm here. I don't understand why. But this is happening and it must be part of a greater plan. I'm going to accept it as from God. That's what Jesus did. He just accepted it. For this purpose I came to this hour. And Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. Listen, a voice came out of heaven. In that moment, in Jerusalem, last week of Jesus. And the voice said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Other people, they said... No, maybe it was an angel who spoke to Jesus. What's interesting with thunder is, and you can find this in different places, Vincent Ward Studies explains this, that Jews in Jesus' day often referred to thunder as the seven voices. Seven mentions of thunder in the book of Job. Revelation chapter 10, seven thunders speak. The Jewish people have this tendency to call thunder the seven voices. Now, why would the Jewish people do that? Psalm 29. I'll just read this to you quickly. Psalm 29, verse 1. says, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Now, count with me. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory, the God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord, or the Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Sarion like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in His temple everything says glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to His people. The Lord will bless His people with peace. How many times does the phrase voice of the Lord appear in the psalm? Seven times. And historically, this is one of the reasons why Jewish people refer to thunder as the seven voices. Because the seven voices, the seven thunders, that thunder in Revelation 10, I'm convinced. The thunder that came as Jesus said, Father, glorify yourself. I have glorified myself. I will again. Sounded like thunder. But here's what's interesting. Those seven thunders are often a biblical representation of God's voice, the voice of God Himself. When the voice of God thundered over Jerusalem, some thought it was God. Jesus obviously knew it was. Some thought maybe an angel. And some people just heard thunder. That's all they heard. They didn't get words out of it. And Jesus clarified it. In John 12.30, He said, This voice has not come for My sake, but for your sake. Well, if the voice came for their sake, why did some only hear thunder? Jesus went on. He said, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. 
And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to Myself. Okay, Jesus, what do you mean? The voices come, not for My sake, but for Yours. God spoke that day. An audible voice. What oftentimes, even today, people ask for. I just want to hear God. And He confirmed His glory in Jesus and in what Jesus was about to do. And some just heard noise. And some heard something that was spiritually beyond them, like an angel. And few actually heard the voice of God. What was the difference in the hearing? Faith. It's faith. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. Sounds like thunder. He says he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The voice from heaven confirmed faith to those who had faith. To those who did not have faith, it was nothing but noise. Seven thunders. Would you like to be able to appraise things more spiritually than you do? I was reading this this week and just thinking, man, I would love to be a more spiritual person. I would love to get a more spiritual bead on what's happening in the world around me. I'd like to hear God more often. I'd like to have more times where it's just me and the Lord. Where my life is quiet enough that I can hear. Of course, you don't really need your life to be quiet to hear thunder. (laughs) I just want to spiritually appraise things with eyes and ears of faith rather than with my feelings or my flesh. It's something I hear far too often in the Christian community. Well, I feel that God is telling me this. You feel it? How about you know it? Yeah, but but emotionally, this is where I feel led. I, I don't want to go by feeling and emotion. I want to hear from the Lord. I want to spiritually appraise where He has me, where He wants me, what He's doing. How do I learn to do that? Elihu, of all the guys, makes the best point so far. I believe he points everybody to God. Rather than defending yourself, man, better to defend God. But even for all of Elihu's eloquence, he still comes up short. Now, he doesn't get rebuked like the other guys do, but he doesn't get commended either. Now that Elihu's done talking, that's it. We won't hear from Elihu again. He will not be mentioned again in the book of Job. Here's the thing. Rather than talking it all through like they've been doing now for 35 chapters... Wouldn't it have been better just to pray? The book of Job would have been a three-chapter book if after chapter 2, Job had sat down, his friends, remember they were together for seven days? And if one of them had just said, Job, can I pray for you? Yeah, let's do that. Let's just shut up and go before the Lord. Let's just take this to God. What did Jesus say after the seven voices thundered, after God thundered from the heavens and spoke? He said, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to Myself. If we will lift up Jesus, 
we will begin to spiritually appraise things. We will begin to get a different read in the world if our focus would just be, if we just take it to Him. He died to draw us in. Forerunners. Our call to the world and to each other is to lift up Jesus. Let's just go to Him. Uh, let me give you the last one, the last traveling trip tip for a forerunner is this. Don't replace prayer, prayer with personal advice. Which is what mostly we do in the church. Don't replace prayer with personal advice. Gather around someone to pray and we talk for an hour and a half. Then we pray for five minutes and we consider it done. I want to encourage you this. When you run into somebody, as you will this week, you run into someone struggling, having a hard time, upset, depressed, stressed out, rather than beginning to give scripture or words of advice or even talking at all, why don't you just say, hey, can I pray for you? Let's just pray. You want to learn to appraise things spiritually. It really is that simple. Right now, I can almost hear what's going through Les's mind. Well then, Rick, why don't you shut up and let's just pray. <laughs> let's do that. Let's do that. Father, truly there is far too much of our words in this world. I think one of the reasons why you allow the book of Job to go on so long is to point out this simple truth to us that we like Job and Elihu and Bildad and Zophar and and all the guys, we just talk and talk and talk. Father, I've prayed this before I ask it tonight. Would you make the Bridge Fellowship a praying church? I'm seeing it happen more and more and I'm thrilled. Opportunities for people to gather, men gathering and women gathering, and and even tonight here gathering, where prayer is becoming, Father, a higher priority for us. And I ask even tonight that you would not allow us to leave here without putting our priority into prayer. Father, teach us to hear your voice and to wait on You through prayer and intercession. And we thank You for Your Word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now quietly, and I recognize that some of you need to go. We recognize that every week. I don't want anybody ever to feel bound. But quietly I want to invite you to spend even a couple of minutes praying Uh, women with women and men with men find one or two other people and just it doesn't have to be eloquent it doesn't have to be wordy just gather and pray if you need to leave God bless you have a great week and uh, and I invite you to stay just for a few minutes let's pray tonight